Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, and this is wonderful, it's well-timed. Julia Cardano with us with Macro Policy Advisors. Julia, um, I look at what John Farrow just said about global accommodation, all the rate cuts out there. What's the long-term price of an accommodation by the Fed's central bank? I, I refuse to believe that Chairman Powell cutting rates is a free lunch. What's the price out there? Well, actually, Tom, I think what the, the question for us right now is whether these rate cuts are just central banks uh, moving to a new reality of lower neutral rates that comes with lower global lower global growth, or whether this is actual, you know, new accommodation that's going to spur growth. I think that's an open question because we've seen the global economy slow down pretty dramatically. We don't have the engine that we've come to rely on out of China. China's been fueled by this massive credit growth in recent years. They don't want to go back down that road. They're being very disciplined about it, and growth is staying very low and likely to slow further. Yeah. but Julie, there's a, there's a difference between a, a rate like we have in the U.S. and the right. negative rates in Europe. That's not adjusting mm-hmm. to a new normal. That's just negative. <laughs> what you mean in, in Europe? You're yes, the, the negative rates in Europe. Yes, I mean that. I think actually though highlights those same structural problems. They don't have an engine of growth. Their demographics are slow. Their productivity is low. So what's going to drive growth? And they've relied on, they've turned to negative rates, and as we see, they're not particularly effective, right? They're not a great engine of growth. So I think that their negative rates highlight that they're just sort of out of ammunition. So, Julia, are you leaning towards that then? If you had to make a decision on where this is going, are you leaning towards the idea that we are experiencing much lower neutral rates and these central banks are adjusting to that reality? Yeah, I I do think that. I mean, I think uh, if I had to describe the current policy stance for the Fed, it would be slightly accommodative, uh, but not tremendously so, despite the rate being so low. So I do think that a lot of this is the reality of lower neutral interest rates. So square that backdrop with a jobs report that is likely to be quite good today uh, and the figures that we got out of ADP yesterday that point into uh, such health in the labor market. How can that persist with this backdrop of weakness as you painted? Well, so I wouldn't say weakness. I just slow growth isn't necessarily weak if that's the reality. And, And again, the jobs, first of all, I don't want to say presume the conclusion of the jobs report one thing we've been highlighting is the surprises in both directions in the jobs reports this year have been about 50% bigger than the last five years. So, you know, we may be surprised in one direction or another this morning, um, but, the re- but what we've seen is a healthy job market. We have seen job growth slow. We need to generate about 100 to 115,000 jobs a month to just absorb population growth, and we're somewhat above that. So we're not exactly roaring. The economy is fine. It's solid. It's healthy. Consumers are feeling pretty good because the job market is good. But we're not in boom times, nor are we seeing weakness. So I think we're, we're seeing that kind of 
steady, moderate growth picture reflected in those jobs numbers. Julia, let me ask you a question that I know RBC's Tom Porcelli has been thinking about and talking to clients about as well. The risk of confusing signs of full employment with evidence that the cyclical peak in the labour market is behind us. What are the risks right now? The, so, so the risks of thinking that we're overheating, is that what you're asking no, about? No, the idea being that as GDP comes in, in and around trend growth and payrolls yep. growth starts to decelerate, there's just a the right. belief by some people that we're not returning to trend growth, that the de- deceleration of payrolls growth is evidence that we've had a cyclical peak in the labour market and we're rolling over. Instead I of see. sitting like here and we saying... We worry about recession. Precisely. Yeah, instead yeah. of sitting here and saying, you know what, quite, we're quite constructive, we're back at trend, and what you are seeing is just the natural consequence of full employment, payrolls growth will decelerate. Are we confusing one with the other? It's, it's very easy to confuse. And of course, you know, when you are at that trend growth, that means that policymakers, for example, don't have a lot of margin for error, which is why the Fed moves preemptively. Uh, now, I think that they've been a little bit disciplined. They've now moved to the sidelines and they say, you know, we need to see more evidence of what you're suggesting, actual weakness, uh, to conclude that we need to do more. So um, mm. it's, it's easy to confuse. It's hard in real time to disentangle those two. We look right. at things like the speed of slowing, if we're slowing rapidly and, and in a worrisome way, which isn't what we've seen. We've seen sort of a gradual uh, moderation yeah. and growth through the year. Are we aggregating too much? I mean, we're going to come out here in one uh, in 30, 37 uh, minutes, and we're going to aggregate, aggregate, aggregate. Can we get away with that game given the partitions of the American labor economy? Well, that's a great point, Tom. I mean, w- when we see the report this morning, it's likely to show a manufacturing sector that's still, that is in recession, um, that's probably going to lose some jobs. Uh, you know, abstracting from the GM strike effect. Um, but, uh, and, and meanwhile, the service sector is humming along. And in fact, the healthcare sector is in sort of a secular growth streak, uh, state given our aging economy. So there are different sub-economies. We always have to keep that in mind when we're thinking about, for example, Jonathan's question, are we slowing in a broad-based way? Are we driven by weakness in one sector? I think it's worrisome in the composition of, of growth and hiring that the weakness is in, in investment um, and in sectors that have high productivity, whereas the, the resiliency is in sectors with relatively low productivity. That's not a great mm-hmm. pattern in terms of thinking about the future. So I think the details do matter a lot. Um, but we have a gigantic service sector. It's what powers the economy. And it has given us a really solid base. We're, a, we're an ocean liner of an economy. It's very hard to tip over. Oh, I like that. An, an ocean, ocean liner, liner of an economy. James Sweeney was dancing and <laughs> Julia Coronado was ocean lining. I love the, the sort of the noir version of the, uh, exactly. of, of the ocean yeah. liner of an economy. I am thinking about uh, the, this idea that slow growth could be positive and that we're chugging along and all of these nuances. And I was speaking with David Lafferty yesterday, chief market strategist at Atixis Investment Managers, and he was saying, Honestly, I'm looking at a blank screen for my 2020 outlook, my blinker uh, blinking. I have nothing that interesting to say with this type of backdrop because things are going to just sort of (laughs) chug along. It's kind of a boring market now heading into 2020, Julia. 
<laughs> be careful what you say, though. Again, <laughs> whenever we think it's going to be the most boring, that's when something can, uh, you know, blindside us. So um, I wouldn't say a, a, a year where we're still going to be grappling with things like trade tensions between the U.S. and China and now a U.S. presidential election that is on the front burner and has consequences for different sectors. Um, I don't think that's going to be a boring year. I'm not too worried about being bored next year. Judy Coronado, great to get your thoughts. Macro Policy Perspectives president and founder. Here it is. Here's Vinny Dalji Dice. John, the jobs numbers crossing the Bloomberg wire, contrary to ordinary, a gain of more than a quarter million jobs in November, topping Wall Street forecast. The prior month revised higher, again, November versus October. The unemployment rate down 3.5%, a half century low. Average hourly earnings, meantime, well, they missed the mark up 0.2% versus 0.3%. Again, change in non-farm payrolls from the Labor Department, a gain of 266,000 topping forecasts. The prior month, October, revised higher. Unemployment down, down to 3.5%. I'm Vinny Del Chudice, Bloomberg Radio. Let's go back to New York. Vinny, thank you. Here's the price action. Just wow. Equities advance futures higher by four-tenths of 1%. Bonds decline yields up by 3 basis points on a 10-year now to 185. Yields were coming in just a little bit, so a big reversal, especially at the front end. Yields up by five basis points to 164 and a firmer dollar, a big payrolls print. Jen Farrell, to the claims number in Carl Riccadonna, way out front on that, among others, I go to three decimal points on the rate and it's what I would call a good 3.5%. The three decimals, 3.535. So it was no like statistical fluky-flukiness that we got to 3.5. So you get to Jim Glassman of J.P. Morgan. He's standing to. by for reaction to this one. Your thoughts, Jim? Uh, pretty impressive. And keep in mind, though, the, the settlement of the GM strike is driving a lot of this. You get manufacturing bounce back. Uh, we didn't know how much 40,000 guys were actually on strike. Maybe another 30,000 were indirectly affected. And I think this is a, a reminder that all the manufacturing data coming out and that we're going to see over the next several weeks is going to be showing this balance back from the GM strike. So pretty impressive. And I think the unemployment rate is the key to the whole thing because we just don't know. Yeah. I, I think job growth is slowing down very gradually, not here. But I think for the, for the year it is. Yeah. And I think we're going to see, uh, you just see the unemployment stay at three and a half. It's going to be a really good story. Jim Glassman, thank you so much for the time. We treasure speaking to you, particularly today from Tucson, Arizona. Mr. Glassman is with, Dr. Glassman, I should say, is with J.P. Morgan. John, what is so distinctive here is the U6 grim unemployment number comes into recent lows, 6.9%. That's not 7%. And I'd also note median duration and average duration, those are very, very good statistics as well. There's a there's a solidity to the data. And look at the yields now out four base points, vaulting out to a 1.85%. Also, we should say everyone talks about the trend line being important, not necessarily one number. The revisions also were positive, adding jobs, bringing the three-month average to a 10-month high of 205,000. This is key yeah. uh, when you talk about the longer-term implications. Let's get to the longer-term implications and the market moved as well. Really pleased to say that joining us from PGM it's Mike Collins. He dropped by to the studio to give us his thoughts. Mike, your initial response, please. 
you know, it's a, the same story. The job market has not been the problem for this economy, right? It is rock solid, um, very robust. Um, but if you look through the numbers, you see the same trend we've seen, uh, which is one of the reasons we haven't seen a big spike in wage growth. And even the wage numbers here, the monthly wage gains were actually a little bit lighter than expected because it's all services. It's leisure jobs. It's business services. It's hospitality. Wait, it's a hold lot on of- a second. Average hourly earnings uh, climbed 3.1% from a year earlier. That exceeded pro- uh, projections of 3%. Right, right. The the, the monthly number was a, a, a okay. little light, but right. So we're, we're running at 3% year over year, and that's been where we that's where we've been. Uh, so that's not a change. But 3% based on historical expectations is is arguably a little bit light, right? If inflation is two, you're talking about 1% real wage growth, which doesn't really uh, uh, pay the bills. So um, the the but the labor market is not the problem, right? It's the um, the manufacturing sector and in the international sector. And you're still seeing weakness in Europe. We had that yesterday. Uh, China's not out of the woods yet. Um, you know, there there's, seems like on the manufacturing side globally, you get a good number and then a bad number, a good number and a bad number. So mm-hmm. we're kind of bouncing around the bottom. Let's talk about it, Mike. The consensus call going into next year, you know what it is, it's by the rest of the world. We've heard it from bank after bank after bank after bank. The data this week, the labor market in America, rock solid. The data elsewhere, German industrial production, reminder, as you say, that we're not out of the woods yet. When you think about that consensus call going into next year, where does Mike Collins stand on that debate? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a a general contrarian and a deep value uh, investor. And if you look at the relationships and valuations globally in in equities, for sure, um, it would certainly tilt you uh, to to outside uh, the U.S. Uh, But, you know, the U.S., economy is clearly the bright spot in the world right now. And we expect that to continue, right? The Fed, I think, has done a great job. I give them a lot of credit for pivoting when they did, for cutting three times, getting that funds rate back to what I think is probably closer to a neutral rate, at least in the near term. And so we're actually poised to continue to do okay in the U.S. That's actually, uh, I'm glad you brought up the Fed because I'm watching the yield curve right now. And it's kind of struggling to find whether or not it's steepening or flattening on this news. You're seeing two-year yields Uh, increase just a touch more than 10-year yields here. What is the risk that the Fed will take data like this and stop cutting rates or even hike them uh, and and stymie the growth? Yeah, so they've definitely stopped uh, cutting for now. They are on perma hold uh, for the time being, and this number solidifies that. Um, As as everybody, I think, is in consensus view now, the the hurdle rate to hike is really, really high. I mean, they talk about this symmetrical inflation target. What that means is they want to see inflation, core PCE, well above two before they even think about hiking. And that thing is like 1.5, 1.6 right now. There's a long way to go before that thing gets, gets above two. So I don't see the risk as being in a hike, a hike in the next uh, six months. Your view on credit at the moment, Mike, has been fascinating, extremely bifurcated. What we've seen is the spread between the top end of high yield and the bottom end of high yield really start to move out. It's been an up in quality trade in high yield. Are you starting to think about rotating the other way anytime Absolute, soon? Absolutely. Just just yesterday in our trade room, we had a big uh, a discussion about this. You're seeing actually that relationship. It looks like it's starting to turn the other way again. There's been so much pessimism in the high yield market. A lot of it's in the energy sector, of course. And you got some po- maybe positive news about OPEC cutting production a little bit, maybe bolsters oil prices. But there's so much negativity. There's so many default, so much default risk and recession risk priced in to that tail of the high yield market that there. I think there is an opportunity if you believe like we do that you're not going to be in a recession in 2020 there's value there i'm itching to get in and ask you more about this this is a really important question we're talking about the triple c's the bottom of the junk bond market that has really lagged the broader credit market through 2019 through 2019 we've had gains of 15 percent for corporate credit 
Triple C's just really haven't been there in the last few months. You're talking about buying triple C's. They're, Some of these really, really beaten down credits. Right, but it's about, it's about perception, psychology, and valuation, right? And all those things are pointing in one direction right now. And, and we tend to like to go the other way there. And again, if the default probability priced in is 25% in that basket, and you're only going to get a 10% default rate in that basket, uh, there's value. But obviously, you have to pick your spots. I mean, credit selection is paramount in that space, without a doubt. What would you say to push back that they were cheap earlier this year, uh, they might be less cheap now. What's changed fundamentally to mean that the risk is so much lower going into the bottom of the bottom when we see the default rate actually ticking up in certain sectors? I mean, you've had not only the Fed cutting three times, you've had dozens of rate cuts all around the world, right? Monetary policy has been super stimulative, and now you're finally seeing signs of, of potential fiscal policy. You had some in Japan. You, you may have more in the U.S., regardless of who wins the election next year. And in, in Europe, you might see more. So I feel like you've seen a bottoming in, in global economic data for the time being. I think default risk or recession risk has, has moderated for next year, and, and everybody's off sides in, in that space. Tom, is this time now to go out of triple leverage cash and into uh, no, triple C, no, triple C bonds? I think that this there is through it. The year. This is a stunning report. It completely refutes the gloom crew. Does the Fed respond to it, or do they do what they genetically do, which is just bide time? They buy time. They are on hold indefinitely right now. I mean, you would need to see five or 10 of these reports. You'd need to see the stock market up another 20%. You'd need to see inflation above two. Is that feasible? You're a bond guy. I'm going to ask you that. Is dividend growth a proxy for the yield, the coupon I can't get? Let me extend that forward here in the time we've got. Yeah, we're going to keep you through the hour. This is so important, Michael. Do you shift with this report from a 2020 view of clipping up coupon to back-to-back -back years, a total return pop? You know, in, uh, in, in fixed income, uh, I don't think you're going to see anywhere near the total returns we had this year. But can I look for any kind of gain with coupon? You can, you can clip your coupon in, in 2020, I think. I think the long end of the curve, and we've even seen it today, the 30 years barely moving today. It's a bit, well said, it's a, well said. A, yeah. a bear flattener. Yeah. The front end is bearing the brunt. Explain what a bear flattener is. So the, the two-year note is, is rising in yield today because the markets before this number was actually pricing in a small probability of a cut okay. next year, and that's being yeah. taken out of the market. Can you right stay now. with us? He's coming to TV with me. He's going to TV with you? He has a few more minutes. We're going to milk him. I thought he came to see me. I'm going to let you have about 90 more seconds with Mike Collins before he runs away with me. I've got work to do. That's good to do. Michael Collins was with the PGM, and we thank him for being with us. We are seeing uh, the gains get extended as the U.S. markets open on the heels of that blockbuster jobs number, 266,000 jobs added, uh, well past expectations. Joining us now, Tiffany Wilding, PIMCO U.S. economist. Tiffany, can you give us a sense of just how big of a surprise this was to the upside when it comes to the jobs numbers? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Well, I think, you know, interestingly, the so Bloomberg obviously has a panel of economists, I think there's maybe 178 economists on that panel, um, that 
that has that that present forecasts for each employment report and and this report was above every one of those economists forecasts on the underlying panel so that doesn't happen very frequently i think i can only remember you know maybe one other time within the last several years that that's happened so i mean certainly this is a, an important report you know um you know I, I think there's some some interesting things going on underlying the report as well um you know obviously you had some noise because we had a a, a strike at gm plants that um you know that happened in October, that was resolved, so people came back to work in November. But even if you exclude those around 40 uh, to 50,000 workers that were coming back to work, this is still a very strong uh, report. Yes, it really was, Tiffany, and I think the markets are reflecting that. What is your sense that's really driving this? Are these, what types of jobs are being created at this late stage in the cycle? Yeah, I mean, so kind of, you know, again, we like to look at, um, you know, any any given report obviously is noisy, so we like to look at the given uh, trends. So what you're seeing is an interesting bifurcation, I think, in in services versus good sector jobs. You know, so excluding the the kind of the GM, you know, sort of one-off factors, if you will, goods uh, good sector employment has actually been decelerating this year, and that's you know, manufacturing, construction, other sectors that are related to that, like trade and transport. But on the other side, service which looked earlier in the year like it was decelerating, has actually picked up more recently. Um, and, and this report, healthcare has was really strong. Healthcare sector has been really strong. You know, and I think the important thing to remember about the services sector is that that's a sector that really economists look at in the employment report, because most of the other economic data that we get, at least high frequency economic data, is really geared towards the good side of the U.S. economy. You know, so we tend to get service sector data, you know, with a lag um, other than the employment report. You know, so it's really good news to see service sector hiring um, kind of pick up after dipping earlier this year. Michael Collins from PGM was in here earlier and he was talking about how the type of jobs getting added leaves something to be desired because the job gains have really been made on the lower paying end of the spectrum. Can you give us a sense of how much this matters when people look at this data? I mean, in other words, are all job gains equal? Um, well, so... Uh, I agree with you. I think that's kind of a, I think that's a, a, a bit of a, a longer term trend that we've seen, um, you know, as manufacturing jobs, for example, has decelerated more of a secular trend over the last 10 years. You've seen a, just a general decline in manufacturing jobs in the U.S. and and service, the service sector side of the economy has, um, you know, kind of picked up or absorbed, you know, some of those people that, that lost the manufacturing jobs. But I think one of the more interesting trends right now, actually, is, is looking at the jobs created at large companies versus small and mid-sized companies. You know, so the the real acceleration in, in labor market growth, you know, in, in 2017, 2018, when growth accelerated was really coming from those small to mid-sized firms. And we really, um, you know, hadn't seen that um, prior to, um, you know, kind of in the in the wake of the financial crisis. So that's good news, you know, but kind of more recently, um, that started to slow down a bit, as I mentioned, similarly to the, to the good side. Um, you know, so you want to see an economy that has um, job creation across um, you know many different sectors obviously um, many entrepreneurial small and mid-sized companies increasing jobs that's good news um, so hopefully that picks up as well so Tiffany let's go over to the wage side of the equation came in a little bit better than expected 3.1 percent annual uh, growth um, is that kind of where we should get comfortable is that kind of the best this labor market can give us there's been some con questioning that gee given the low level of unemployment shouldn't wage growth actually maybe be even a little better 
Yeah, well, um, wage growth, even though it was revised higher today, so average hourly earnings, I think, on a year-on-year basis was around 3.1. That's actually below a recent peak that we've seen, um, you know, kind of at the end of of, of, of last year, of, of 3.4. So it looks like average hourly earnings growth has peaked out a little bit, um, you know, I think which presents a bit of a Goldilocks environment because um, you're still seeing the labor market, which is able to, to generate, um, you know, 266,000 job gains without a lot of, uh, uh, wage inflation. You know, now I think there are secular reasons still why that's happening. You know, we talk a lot about what we call labor bargaining power. Um, you know, you you hope that in a what we call a hot economy or a tight labor market, you hope that labor bargaining power starts to increase. But of course, these things take time. You know, now I think the GM strike, the recent GM strike that we saw was kind of an anecdote of, of more labor market bargaining power happening in tight labor markets. But again, this takes time. Um, so, you know, I think that's that that can continues to be um, sort of to dampen uh, wage pressures. You know, we're, we're also just a secular decline in productivity growth. Um, that also, uh, you know, dampens wage pressures because, you know, you should get paid for, you know, how much uh, in price inflation that we're seeing and then how productive we are um, on, on the job. So those two things, I think, are secular reasons why, you know, uh, average hourly earnings are still, um, you know, somewhat below the, the peak that we saw last cycle, um, and they're probably likely to stay there. Tiffany Wilding of PIMCO uh, joining us right now. We're speaking with her. Uh, she's a U.S. economist about the jobs figures in particular. Tiffany, people are wondering uh, what this means for the Federal Reserve markets now, discounting any additional rate cuts in 2020. I'm wondering whether uh, the Fed is right to be on pause here, given the job gains that we're seeing. In other words, are we in a new Goldilocks? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I think we might be. Um, certainly, the the wage pressures would suggest that the Fed does not need to be in a hurry to hike interest rates. You know, but at the same time, you know, the, the fact that the U.S. economy and job creation does look like it is reaccelerating a bit after after dipping more notably over the summer um, or earlier this year, um, that would suggest that it's certainly fine to be on hold. So the the accommodation that the Fed has already provided this year is starting to support the economy. We're starting to see that, um, and it, it it suggests they don't need to provide additional support at this time, um, and then they can remain on hold. So Tiffany, given that scenario, as you think about your 2020 GDP outlook, give us a sense of kind of how you think this maybe strengthening job market uh, may impact uh, economic growth next year. Yeah, well, so labor markets do, do tend to lag uh, broader economy revenues um, and, and profits and, and things like that. You know, so you have to be a, a little bit careful. I mean, the reason why economists, as I mentioned, the reason why economists look at this so uh, so closely is because, um, you know, just in terms of the noisiness of, of this report, it is a little bit better, you know, than some of the other uh, revenues or, or other production type of reports that we get. But we do have to remember that the labor market lags. So, you know, if growth does start to decelerate again, um, you know, then ultimately the labor market will decelerate again with a lag to that. You know, now I think I think just kind of thinking about this, you know, a little bit more broadly, I mean, certainly the labor market has has been stronger, um, you know, than I think many would have expected in the context of, of some of the, uh, you know, the trade tensions that we've seen. We've also seen consumer sentiment hold up a lot better, you know, so I that that's, I think, also good news, um, you know, for for the U.S. economy, given that there has been some some disruption um, and, and potentially, you know, some negative headlines around that. Tiffany Wilding, thank you so much uh, for taking such uh, time with us this morning. Tiffany Wilding is U.S. economist at PIMCO, joining us on the jobs figures.
We welcome Bloomberg TV and, of course, Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jonathan Farrow. For the White House's views on the jobs report, we're joined by Larry Kudlow now, the National Economic Council Director. Larry, it's great to see you. A stunning payrolls report. I'm sure the day feels a little bit better down in D.C. Now these numbers are out. Well, it does. It's a sunny day down here. And the key point is America is working. America is working. And despite whatever, you know, cynicism or criticism, the fact is the jobs numbers are actually getting better in recent months. And we scored 266 uh, this time around. Plus, you got 41,000 revision so from the two prior months. So that actually gets you above 300,000. My point is, despite, I don't know, a certain amount of pessimism, uh, the economy is outperforming expectations. Uh, economic policies from the president are working and America is going back to work. And I just think that's crucial because you know what, Jonathan, I can't remember who wrote the book. My pal over at the American Enterprise Institute, um, Brooks, right? Who was his name? Uh, Brooks. Anyway, America is a happy place when it's working. I mean that. And America is a cranky place when it's not working. And I think as this new rebuilding of the economy with new incentives from taxes and regulations and energy and protecting ourselves on trade, as the numbers come in, as people come out of the woodwork, as the you know, production workers uh, are getting higher wages or faster wages than their bosses are. Anyway, all these things, yeah. this is a country that's going back to work, Jonathan, and I think it's a happier country as a result of it. Larry, just to pick up on one thing you said there, protecting ourselves on trade. Are you saying that the current trade stance you think is actually helping the U.S. economy? And with that in mind, is there any reason to pull back these tariffs if that's the case? Well, look, I don't want to. We're in negotiations right now. As the president has said in recent days, they're constructive, almost round the clock negotiations. Doesn't mean he's going to sign the deal. He hasn't seen the final deal yet. He's holding back, but he basically likes what he sees. So we'll see how that is. If you want to pursue that in a moment or two, uh, fine. No, I had something different in mind, Jonathan, almost psychological. I think that one of President Trump's most important accomplishments in his uh, first three years in office is to change and clar clarify the narrative on China and that this country, the USA, cannot, cannot permit unfair trading practices uh, either by our allies or our non-allies. Technology, innovation, invention, application, as you well know, this is the heart of the American economy. We have the freedom to uh, create, and that freedom is what drives our economy forward at the fastest rate of any country in the world for all these years. So here's my point. His job, as he sees it, is to defend America, to protect the workers, the farmers, the manufacturers, the people working in technology. That's his job. And so when I say people are happy, I think the country has come around to the president's narrative that yeah. we must be tough. We must be tough with China and anybody else who thinks they can willy-nilly steal our, not just our technology advances, 
but our God-given creativity. Well, Larry, you won't permit that. I think most and people think would argue you've been tough popular. with China. Most people would argue that you have. You said the president likes what he sees. October 11th, the president said, we have come to a deal, pretty much, subject to getting it written. It'll probably take three weeks, four weeks, or five weeks. That was eight weeks ago. What has the president seen? What's been agreed? Well, look, the president's up to speed on everything. We're almost in around-the-clock negotiations. The uh, deputy level met, um, let's see, not last night, but the night before. The final strokes are not there. We're coming down to short strokes. We've been there. Now some of the most delicate matters have to be uh, adjudicated, discussed, analyzed, and evaluated. And then it will be presented to President Trump, and he'll take a look at it. As he said in London, and he said when he got back from London, he thinks the talks are moving ahead very nicely. He likes that they're very constructive, but, 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 he's not ready yet to sign or he hasn't seen everything he wants to see. So we're moving forward nicely, covering a lot of ground. And um, I've learned never to forecast the outcome. And ultimately, it is President Trump's going to make the final call, as you know. That's the story, Larry. But I'm still trying to work out what's happened in the last eight weeks or so. The president on October 11th said a tremendous deal for the farmers, a purchase from 40 to $50 billion of ag products. This was his message to the farmers. I'd suggest the farmers have to go and immediately buy more land and get bigger tractors. What has been negotiated and what has been agreed? Can I just ask you again, was there ever any agreement whatsoever on October 11th that involved 40 to $50 billion of U.S. agricultural products? Well, Jonathan, I, as you might guess, I am not going to be specific about these details. They're on the table. Uh, I think your narrative is, is, is basically correct. I can't say yes and I can't say no. These are part of the final strokes. Uh, agriculture, not only agriculture spending, by the way, but also opening up the ag market uh, so that um, we are able to export a lot of different areas that they had prevented us from doing so. It's not my place today yeah. to reveal, you know, these, um, uh, shall we say, secret or, you know, closely held talks. But I will continue to suggest that we are close. Progress has been made. Great progress has been made. And we'll see how it ends up. It's almost around the clock discussions right now. But Larry, the president did reveal that eight weeks ago. And I'm trying to understand whether that is still on the table or not. So I'll ask it in vaguer terms, perhaps not in such specific terms. Has China shown any willingness whatsoever to agree to a dollar amount of U.S. agricultural products? Well, I sure can't speak for them. And we have not papered you know, we have not codified and papered and translated these lengthy documents. So we'll have to wait and see. It takes two to tango, so both sides have to agree. Um, we're waiting for that, uh, both paperwork and translations. Uh, so we will see. I might add, if I'm not mistaken, Jonathan, I yeah. don't know whether it was your organization. Somebody reported today that China withdrew some barriers to agriculture uh, as a goodwill gesture. Uh, I'm not sure on all the details, but if it's a goodwill gesture, we appreciate goodwill gestures.
They're in the process of waiving retaliatory tariffs on some of the imports of U.S. pork and soy by domestic companies. That seems to be the, the latest turn of things, Larry. Would your message still be for the American farmer to go out and buy more land, to buy more tractors, or would you tell him to wait? Um, you know, it's funny. I, as a broadcaster and a Wall Street economist even before that, used to love to make forecasts. I'm kind of... Um, more cautious now. I, I don't really want to tell the farmers what they should and should not do. I'm going to hold back on that, uh, you know, just in case any of them actually followed my advice. I, I, I don't want to go there. I'm just saying that what I believe the yeah. president was inferring is that the discussions that we had uh, a month or so ago with the top people, Liu He and so forth, uh, certainly had those numbers on the table and that our farm community, great patriots that they are, they've taken some hits and they've stayed uh, behind us in defending this uh, China trade effort. Uh, if they get it, then they probably will be buying a lot more equipment and perhaps they should buy land. I'm just not good at forecasting farmland. I have been to Iowa, Jonathan. I've covered the primaries in Iowa, the caucuses several times. Iowa, nice. It's a lovely place. But I'm not going to give them any free advice on how they should run their businesses. Okay, well, let's pick up on December 15th. Investors want to know the big one. If there's no phase one deal by December 15th, Larry, and we're getting closer and closer to that date, what actually happens? What's the next step? Well, I wouldn't want to speculate on that. Look, um, on the one hand, as Secretary Mnuchin said, I think, yesterday, there are no arbitrary deadlines in any of this. On the other hand, December 15th is a very important date because if the trade negotiations or the deal or the agreement is not complete, uh, our current law would restore tariffs on a number of items, as you probably know. I don't know what the exact number is. Uh, 125, maybe 150 billion. So December 15th is an important date. There are no arbitrary deadlines, and we will wait and see. Th these, of course, are decisions that will be made by President Trump, depending on how the talks go between now and then, whether we have buttoned down all the buttons, and whether it is a satisfactory agreement that is great for America. So it's an important date to keep an eye on. But I don't want this morning with you, uh, I don't want to make any conclusions and okay. I don't want to mislead anybody. I, I appreciate that, Larry. So let's just talk about process just a little bit. There is the December 15th round of tariffs and then there are the October ones that were suspended. Would the next move from the White House be to look back at the October round of tariffs that were suspended or move forward with the December 15th tariffs? How should we be thinking about this? I didn't want to speculate. It's all very hypothetical. I was kind of hoping you were going to grill me on USMCA and, and how... No, I was going to work through China deal. first and then get to USMCA last, Larry. If so we, let's finish we, with China we, just a little bit. We, it's not speculating, is it? USMCA is worth a lot on it, GDP. I'm it's sorry, not go ahead, It's not speculating, though, is it, Larry, to try and get an understanding of where the priority is? Do we look back to October, or is that done with, or do we go forward as a next step to go forward with the December 15th round of tariffs? Well, look, it's a day at a time. Uh, you know, as I said, as you noted, we have certain markers in the process. I mean, we had an APEC marker 
But unfortunately, all that got canceled a couple weeks ago. So now we have a December 15th marker. As I said, there are no arbitrary deadlines. But on the other hand, by current agreement and law, the president has suggested tariffs might be, I say might, be restored on December 15th. That's the arrangement. These are decisions that are up to the commander-in-chief. And he will make those decisions based on the available information, how the talks go between now and then. What's today? December 4th or December 5th? So we got about a week left, a little more than a week left. Um, President Xi on the other side will go through the same process. So one of the things I've learned, and you and I have been working together on this now for well over a year, it's very hard to make predictions. Very hard to make predictions. I don't expect you to make predictions today, Larry. Just a little bit of insight and some clarity into the discussions that you are a part of with the President of the United States. We want to understand, my audience as well, the minimum condition that China needs to meet from the US side to avoid that December 15th round of tariffs. If it's not a deal, what is the minimum condition of success, so to speak, to avoid that? I don't think that Mr. Lighthizer, Ambassador Lighthizer, has ever suggested a, a quote, minimum condition. We have a discussion uh, of a package that we call phase one, agriculture access, agriculture purchases, intellectual property uh, theft, forced transfer of technology, various tariff and non-tariff barriers, uh, ownership, financial services, uh, currency, currency manipulation. So I probably left stuff out, but that's the package that's being discussed. There are big chapters in these big documents, yeah. as I think you know. So I, I do not want to single one out there is no certain condition. Uh, we will work towards phase one, and then what is left to be done over time would spill over into phase two. I think it was a very sensible approach. It reflected a change in President Trump's thinking that he was willing to do this in pieces, sequentially, if you will and uh, phase two could well be out there. But I would not, I would tell you and advise you, there is no one single condition that would make or break the talks right now. The talks have been going on, they've been going on. Many people think perhaps that China is stalling. For the December 15th round of tariffs to be credible, there needs to be a belief that the President of the United States will actually go through with it. It's 15% on the final $160 billion of Chinese imports that haven't been hit from tariffs as yet, and they include many, many consumer items, as you know, Larry. From your understanding, does the president have the appetite to follow through on that if the Chinese keep stalling? Well, look, the president has proven himself. I mean, there can be no doubt that he is a very tough negotiator. I mean, he's got in his quiver of arrows he has various tariffs, sometimes sanctions, now negotiations. So he has proven to be a tough, canny, wily negotiator. And that is his style. Uh, I believe he wrote a book on it, The Art of the Deal. And you probably read it. I read it. And I don't want to predict what his moves will be. 
He will have the best information that our trade principal team gets to him, and he will sit down and think things through. I do not want to forecast that, but I think we've all learned that if he is not satisfied with these talks, just as he was not satisfied with the China talks last spring and summer, as you may recall, then he would not hesitate to uh, increase tariffs. He's shown that to us. I'm not saying that's going to happen. Please don't misunderstand. I'm just saying in terms of your open-ended question, he has proven to be a very tough and very wily negotiator. And Larry, what we found is that when the president is face-to-face -face with someone, that is often when we can get a result. When is the next round of face-to-face -face talks actually scheduled for? Uh, you mean with me? I, I'm, I'm with the United States and dinner. with China, with the oh, president, China. with Ambassador oh, Lighthouser, with Secretary Mnuchin. When can we get the U.S. delegation together with the Chinese delegation? And does that need to happen again before we get a phase one truce? Well, I, I don't know the answer to that. At the present time, no plans are on the table between the two leaders. Um, regarding Secretary Mnuchin and Ambassador Lighthizer, uh, so far as I know, they have no plans to travel, but, but they might travel. You know, bear in mind, Jonathan, I, I, I don't want to emphasize this too much, but I want to put it into the mix. If, 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 underscore, you have an agreement, the two heads of state don't necessarily have to sign it, or at least simultaneously in the same room. You could begin the signing process at the ministerial level, which I think on our side would be Lighthizer and Mnuchin. I presume on their side, uh, Vice Premier Liu He. You could do it as yeah. a ministerial matter, you could do it as a presidential matter, or you could do both. So there's options there. I, I feel I can say to you directly, none of those decisions have been made. And to quote President Trump, Let's get a deal first, and then we'll figure out how, when, where we'll do the signing. So, Larry, I understand your people would like us to wrap up this uh, interview. If, I, if I'm allowed, I'd love to ask you just one final question, and it's a delicate one, so forgive me for going here. The administration, as you point out, and I've agreed with you, has done a fantastic job of putting real pressure on China to highlight IP theft, to highlight the issues around forced technology transfer as well. You've changed the dialogue around those issues. But there now are serious, serious allegations of human rights abuses taking place in the country. Why is this a country that the United States wants to do a trade deal with? Well, okay, interesting question, Janet. Um, we have made it very clear, President Trump, Secretary of State Pompeo, Mr. Mnuchin, myself and others, we have made it very clear that we, America, always stand on the side of freedom and democracy. We have made that clear. We will con that is in our bones. That is in America's DNA. That is who we are. We will continue to make that clear. And that includes not only the Hong Kong story, but as you know, disturbances and disruptions on the Chinese mainland with various groups as well. Having said that, Having said that, I don't think those issues are interfering with the trade talks. You know, these are complicated relationships. 
you got your two big powers, a lot goes on. There's national security issues, which you and I could bring up. That's another point. There is the human rights, freedom, and democracy issues. That's a key point, religious freedom particularly, but also political freedom. Uh, then we have the trade freedoms. We're looking to get trade freedoms from uh, China. So I don't think at this stage, and I'm pretty confident about this, that the difficulties in Hong Kong, and again, we have come out on the side of the freedom fighters, those have not spilled over into the trade talks. So the complexity of the issue, you can still separate one from the other. And I think it's fair to say, and I've spoken to Ambassador Lighthizer about this, uh, Mr. Mnuchin and others, that really the, the difficulties in Hong Kong, uh, we signed the congressional resolution. They had their local elections, which were a gigantic victory for freedom and democracy. But that never really spilled over into the trade talks. I think that's where that stands right now. But please, make no mistake about where America's heart is, where our basic soul and DNA are on freedom and democracy, and of course, where our diplomacy has made the same very clear. Larry, I appreciate that authenticity to wrap up this particular interview. Larry, if we don't get to talk again before the end of the year, I just wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your regular contributions to, uh, to the network and to the program. Have a wonderful Christmas, Larry, if you and I don't get to talk again. And same to you right back at you, Jonathan. It's been my great pleasure. Larry Kudlow there, the National Economic Council Director from the White House. Guys, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.